This is the Building Resilience Podcast, Episode 67, Speech Language Pathology Role in Managing Concussions. Welcome to the Building Resilience Podcast, where you will learn all about building resilience in yourself and helping others build it too. Drawing from the principles of positive psychology, neuroscience, and coaching, I will help you face all the challenges and adversities that life throws at you and help you do more than just survive. I will help you thrive. I am your host, Leah Davidson, and I am a certified life coach and speech language pathologist. I will help you manage your mind, your emotions, deal with your stress and your overwhelm, and lead a more purposeful and joyful life. Let's get started. Hello, everybody. It is still Brain Injury Awareness Month in the U.S., and last week I shared with you some information all about concussions. I shared with you some details about what entails a concussion, what to look for, and we went over some of the most common concussion myths. And today I wanted to share with you some more information about concussions, specifically what I'm familiar with, and that is what the role of a speech language pathologist is in managing concussions. And to help me have this discussion, I invited a colleague. Her name is Danielle Hyde. So let me tell you just a little bit about her. She is a speech-language pathologist like myself, and she is the owner of NeuroConnections, a private practice that provides communication, cognitive, and swallowing services, mainly for adults after concussion, brain injury, and stroke. Danielle has been working with adults with neurological impairments since graduating with her master's in speech-language pathology in 2012. She has worked in a variety of medical settings, both in the U.S. and Canada. Danielle is passionate about concussion advocacy and education, including the SLP's role in concussion management and recovery. So welcome, Danielle. Thanks so much for having me, Leah. I'm so excited to have you and to share the discussion. I know we've had discussions together before, so I was excited to get some of it on air and to help the audience really understand a bit more about such an important topic and something that we don't talk about enough, that's for sure. Agreed. So as I mentioned last week, I'm just going to do a little bit of a background in case you missed last week's, but please go back and review. Concussions typically are going to resolve within a couple of weeks, but the research does show that there is around 20% that doesn't get better within four weeks. And these are people that are experiencing problems that really interfere with their return to regular activity. And this stat I got from the Ontario Neurotrauma Foundation, and it was back in 2018, but I don't imagine things have changed too much. Now, the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center identified six different trajectories that concussions take depending on the mechanism, the location of the injury, and the severity. And I talked a little bit about this last week, where the trajectories include cognitive fatigue, vestibular, the balance, ocular vision, post-traumatic migraine, cervical, and anxiety mood. And they had said that even among these trajectories, symptoms can overlap and present differently in patients. So every brain needs to be rested after a serious injury, but lingering symptoms related to these things can be addressed by a trained medical professional. So as speech pathologists, or we also refer to ourselves as SLPs or speech paths or speech therapists, we often end up seeing people who kind of fall under the cognitive fatigue trajectory. 
And because cognition often impacts communication, we end up working with people who have cognitive communication challenges. So today in the podcast, I just wanted to have the discussion with you, Danielle, about, let's talk about the importance of communication. Let's talk about what cognitive communication is, what the challenges are that people have, what we see what we wish we didn't see, um, Mm -hmm. what we wish we could get people out there to have a different understanding. So I really just wanted to have a discussion about that. I will also be sharing some information that has been put out by the Speech and Language and Audiology Canada Association about the role of SLPs in concussion. And we'll be referencing a couple other things, which I'll I'll dive into and and give credit where credit is due, because there's a lot of SLPs who have really invested some time into this area, and we want to make sure they they get credit. So the first thing let's talk about, and I know that this is your passion, so you can talk as much as I can talk. Let's talk about importance of communication, just in general. Absolutely. I want your listeners to think uh, a little bit about maybe their job or maybe they're in school. What aspects of your day involve communication? So communication is not just listening and expressing ourselves, but also reading and writing, meetings, emails, giving instructions, chit-chatting with coworkers, giving and receiving feedback. These are all aspects of communication. So when you think of your day, most jobs actually 70 to 80% of the day is spent communicating. And if you're in school, I think it's probably closer to 100%. A speech pathologist, I think we're pretty close to 100%. I think we're like 200%. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) Communication is essential. And when, after a concussion, we know people are struggling to get back to school or back to work. And this is a huge piece. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I also think that we do want to understand that there's a broad range of communication challenges that result from like an interplay of different things. So for example, if your cognition is impacted, like that's the attention and memory and organization and reasoning and executive function skills. But there can also be some emotional components, which is things like, you know, anxiety and depression. And then there's physical components like sleep and fatigue and pain and all the visual and auditory stuff. So if you have symptoms in any of those areas, they are likely going to affect your communication. And so when we talk about cognitive communication, they really are a specific type of communication difficulty that results from cognitive impairments, but they impact everything that we do. Do you want to speak to, do you want to explain a little bit about what is cognitive communication? How is that different from just the general term communication? So these changes, so cognitive communication difficulties, these underlying changes in cognition affect our communication ability. So our, our ability to understand or process information, expressing ourselves concisely or succinctly or effectively, reading retention, remembering what we've read, as well as writing, organizing our writing, and then social communication. So being able to participate in social gatherings and interactions, and you know, sometimes following those social rules and these underlying changes in cognition, our ability to 
monitor ourselves, control our impulses, initiate things, they impact communication. And like we talked about, they are so vital in the both work and academic world. Yeah. And just yeah, in I- daily life. Oh, totally. Totally. Yeah. I always, when I I talk to people about cognitive communication, I say, we think of communication, that pure language where it's like the speaking and the listening and the reading and the writing, and even the social, like, like you said, the chit chatting and the conversations Mm -hmm. and then cognition is like the attention and the memory and the decision-making and the problem-solving and the critical thinking. And cognitive communication is basically where they intersect. Like you, you are going to struggle with reading if you can't remember what you read, or you're going to struggle in a conversation if you can't follow the conversation because you don't have the attention or you can't remember what people say. And so initially, I think after when people have concussions, they may start with having small challenges. Maybe it's a challenge in focusing, or maybe it's a challenge like they'll talk about like a fogginess. So they're not able to concentrate as much. And then that will impact on their ability to read or on their ability to have conversations or to understand. And that's why it it is such a big deal because it, like you said, it affects everything that we do. And sometimes it's not that you can't do that. It's not that you can't read. It's not that you can't understand information, but it's not efficient. And if writing an email took you five minutes before and it takes you an hour and a half now, how are you going to do your job? How are you going to go to school? I mean, it's the effectiveness and the efficiency that is usually impacted. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's an important piece that so many times people will say, I can still do it, but it's taking me a lot more time, a lot more effort, or even after they do it, they're like, I'm a mess for couple hours, a couple days, a couple weeks that they just are completely exhausted. So sometimes people are able to accomplish what they want to accomplish or accomplish what they used to accomplish, but it's just, like you said, not efficient, not productive. They're just, they're spent right. by the time they've done it. Right. Yeah. Which means you can't participate in the same number of activities that you did before. And mm-hmm. that impacts quality of life. Right? Yeah. Okay. So people have been diagnosed with a concussion. Things are lingering on a little bit. When, where, how should they be referred to a speech pathologist? This is a big loaded question. And mm-hmm. as I'm sharing this, and I think you can agree, this is something I'm talking to the audience, like the general public, but in all honesty, I think there's a lot of professionals out there as well that don't really have a clue. A speech pathologist should be involved. Like what's a speech pathologist going to be doing with this person? Their speech is fine is what I hear all the time. So I really want to help guide, like when do we see people? Why should they be referred? Can you start talking a little bit about your experience with that? Yes. Yes. I mean, I recognize, we both know that a lot of physicians, neurologists, even other rehab professionals don't really know what we do with this population. And I was looking at a study, uh, I think conducted last year by Nolman Porter and colleagues, and they looked at the frontline healthcare providers. So physicians, uh, nurses, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, athletic trainers, this was in the States. And 
they found that, so there was, this was a survey and they asked about their knowledge of our role and more than half stated they did not know. <laughs> they did not know what we did with this population. And these are the people that are referring out. And so not only did more than half not really understand what we did, even those that rated their knowledge as high were not always able to accurately identify what domain, so cognitive or cognitive communication, they weren't even able to accurately identify that's what we did. So some stated we dealt with swallowing difficulties and dysphagia and aspiration, which is absolutely true as SLPs, certainly in the acute care setting, but that's not a primary domain in this population. Mm -hmm. Occasionally, sometimes it happens. It's mm -hmm. uncommon though or fluency. Again, something we yeah. might see occasionally, but it's not the primary domain that we right. treat. And so consequently, not surprisingly, two thirds either never or rarely referred out. Right. So there's a huge gap in knowledge here. Yeah. Um, another study conducted at a specialty concussion clinic, they looked at referral patterns and they found, so this is presumably a clinic who understands the role. They have an SLP on staff, right? Speech therapy was actually the second most referred specialty after oh. physical therapy at this concussion clinic. So 28% were referred to physical therapy after and 23% were referred to speech. So we know that we have, that we're valuable in this area and that we can provide a lot to help get some of these clients back to the activities, school, work. And so we, we have some work to do in terms mm -hmm. of educating that's some right. of those and that's why we're frontline here. workers. <laughs> that's why we're here. Yeah, exactly. I know that I have in my experience, and you know, I've been doing this for a long time. So I will say I'm happy to report that probably in the past five years, I've been getting a lot more referrals for concussion. It used to be that I would get referrals for traumatic brain injury when they were moderate to severe. And then if they were quote unquote milder, it usually, it had been going on for a long time or people had like obvious signs. Like you said, they would be stuttering and something. And the stutter is like, oh, clear speech pathology referral. Whereas mm -hmm. even things like word finding, surprisingly, is not always a clear speech pathology referral when it, it really should be. So it has been getting better. But my Agreed. experience generally has been that clients will come and they... Often the clients I see, I don't know about you, have been struggling with post-concussive symptoms for quite a while. We'll start working together. And I mean, I want to humbly report that inevitably <laughs> they say to me, I'm sure they say the same thing to you. Like, why wasn't I referred so much earlier? This is exactly what I've been struggling with. This is exactly the challenges that I've been having. Is that, has that been your experience? Absolutely. Too? Absolutely. And, and, and agreed. I, I do think it's getting a lot better, but there are still clients a year, two years who have been struggling. And finally they come see us and they say, okay, where have you been? Like, why wasn't I, why haven't I been seeing you this entire time? Right. And even for their own communication advocacy piece, right? right? They aren't able to advocate or communicate effectively to get what they need. And I think that's another reason why we should be in there a lot earlier. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Excellent. 
Absolutely. So let's talk about a couple things now. I want to dive into when should people be referred at what stage? What are sort of the red flags that other Mm -hmm. providers could notice to say, oh, this is somebody that should be referred for speech pathology. And then we can jump into a little bit more about what we actually do. And at this point, I want to give credit to one of our Mm -hmm. SLP colleagues and mentors and teachers. And I have had the privilege of being taught by her in so many different settings. The practice that I work with for speech pathology is called Michelle Cohen Associates. And um, I've been with Michelle Cohen and Associates for 16 plus years now. And we have done a lot of the beta testing for this amazing speech path called Sheila McDonald. And she's from Guelph, Ontario. Anyone in SLP world knows her. She Mm -hmm. is the creator of an incredible assessment tool, which is called the Favors which is basically, I think it's the best tool out there that we have to assess executive function skills. And I know that we use it as speech pass. I know that OTs try to sneak in and use it as well because it's such an effective tool. As I've worked with Michelle Cohen and Associates, I've had the privilege of being part of the beta testing with Sheila, where she was trying out some of these tools and learning. She's one of the main contributors to our college has a position statement, which is a lot of the information that we're sharing about what we should be doing, what we can do to help this concussion population. And she relatively recently, I I feel like it is probably not as recent. Yeah, I was looking, it's like 2015. So it's not that recently. She came out (laughs) with a checklist and it's called the Cognitive Communication Checklist for Acquired Brain Injury. And we affectionately refer to it as the CABI. She came out with it and it is an amazing checklist. And if you are a professional out there, or even if you're not, and you are wondering, okay, when should I refer? What am I looking out for? It is this beautiful checklist that she has divided into different sections and we'll go through it a little bit and gives examples of what falls under each category. And literally, if you are checking things off on this checklist, refer to a speech pathologist. It's that simple. I think what happens sometimes is people have been getting their hands on it. They check it off and then they will look and think the client is very overwhelmed. They already have so many things going on. Their schedule is filled with physio. They've got school, they've got work. So we'll see how it goes. And so the checklist may even end up being used, but it is meant as a screening and basically as your direction to check something off, refer to a speech path. It's just so easy. And it's something that I wish that more people were aware of. And that's why I wanted to really give it a shout out today. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I even find that when clients review it, they kind of think, oh, I didn't realize I had this problem until it was articulated in this way. Like we know memory and attention, word finding, you know, fluency, those are pretty easy to figure out. But some of, especially with the problem solving and the executive functions, I I notice some people think, listen, yeah, that's really challenging for me. I didn't really realize it until I read it. So I think if anyone is wondering, are these... Do, should I, would I benefit from seeing an SLP review, go through it, yeah. read everything. Do you check anything off? Then that's maybe you can self-refer. Mm-hmm. Um, 
That's the other thing, actually. Yes, you can self-refer. You can very easily reach out. And these days with social media, I know that even Danielle, you have a wonderful Instagram account that people can refer to and uh, Neural Connections. And I know I'm with Michelle Cohn Associates. Sometimes we get a lot of our referrals. It's all word of mouth. I'm sure it's like that Mm -hmm. with you as well, but you Mm -hmm. can definitely self-refer. If you have been struggling with a concussion and some of these things that we're going to go over, and then most importantly, if you are a professional, then yeah, reach out. Also, speech pathology is a huge field. So before we dive into this checklist, I kind of want to detour around a little bit. It's a huge field. We have speech pathologists who specialize in many different areas. The area of acquired brain injury is a very specialized field. And so it's not just referring to anybody. I know that sometimes people will contact me and they'll say, oh, my son is having a hard time with their R's. And I will say, great, let me refer you to the speech path that I used for my kids. (laughs) (laughs) Because that is not my area of expertise. Uh, So if you are referring to a speech pathologist or you want to be referred because you're experiencing a concussion and all the Mm -hmm. symptoms that uh, fall out from that, you want to be talking and being referred to somebody who has a lot of experience in the area of acquired brain injury. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it takes a little extra education Another shout out to Sheila McDonald to really, especially with concussion, because some of these symptoms are really subtle and it really benefits the client to have a clinician who has the experience, the knowledge in this specific area. So absolutely. Right. Ask yeah, those questions. In addition to like speech pathologists have master's degrees and we have areas that we of course have to learn in, but for cognitive communication, Sheila McDonald has created some trainings, which I think is really mandatory that if you're going to be working with a cognitive communication, if you're going to be working with acquired brain injury to take her two trainings. She sort of is the the gold standard, the platinum standard, whatever you want to say. I know that I, mm-hmm. I took her courses years ago and they're just incredible. I still refer back to the information because she, mm-hmm. and she's up on the research. So you not only want to be taking the courses, but you want to be keeping up with the research because this is a field and an area that is constantly changing. We are learning so much about the brain, how the brain recovers, how the brain works almost on a daily basis. So you have to be keeping up with the education. So again, you want to make sure that you're being referred to somebody who knows what they're talking about. And I just want to add Sheila now has all of her. So prior to this, and I think we've both taken her live courses, Mm -hmm. she has it all online now and in module in modules. And so you can purchase the modules. And I believe for any SLPs listening, you can also have CEU credit. So, um, much more accessible now than it used to be. It was only offered Mm -hmm. once a year before in person and now it's online and she updates it regularly. So, Do it then. Do it. If you're a speech path, it is amazing. It is such an incredible piece of education. But let's get back to talking about this checklist, the cabbie. Do you want to run Mm -hmm. through it and just share what it looks like and what are some of the things, the areas that it covers? Absolutely. So it breaks it down into a couple of different categories. Our first one here is auditory comprehension and information processing. What I also like, she includes a few 
physical difficulties that you may have and what profession to refer to them. So of course, if you're having difficulty with hearing what is said or ringing in the ears, sensitivity to sounds, you want to refer to an audiologist. So some of the areas here she has within auditory comprehension and information processing, understanding word sentences, maybe long statements are more difficult, complex statements, really picking up on those subtle or implied information might be challenging, integrating information or getting the gist or the main mm. idea of something, if there's a tendency to misunderstand or misinterpret conversations or discussions, as well as focusing your attention or shifting your attention. It might be difficult to stay on track in a conversation or on topic. And then holding information in your mind while talking or listening, and then trying to remember that information. So again, the language domain of auditory comprehension, but impacted by attention, right. impacted by memory. Yeah. And the speed at which you're doing things, the processing speed that, that sort of falls under that category as well. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Now, the next category is uh, expression, discourse, and social communication. And that's where it's, yeah, it's all the sounds, the articulation, the things we traditionally think of for speech pass and word finding and memory. So this is like having a hard time finding a word or you're thinking of a word or you can't find the right word is something that we commonly hear. People have a hard time initiating conversations or coming up with what to say, thinking of how to elaborate what they want to say. And then it could be the flip side where they're overly talkative. They may be kind of rambling and having a lot of verbosity. There could be some things that they're maybe impulsively responding to things or being inappropriate with their speech. And then there's nonverbal skills where things like the eye contact and facial expressions and picking up on the cues as well. So those are the kind of things that fall under expression. And then as we mentioned earlier, there's also things like fluency. If you notice that people are having some stuttering or having some challenges with their voice, that definitely is, a, is an indicator to refer as well. Right. And so next we have reading, reading comprehension. So absolutely here if we're having issues with blurred vision, double vision, sensitivity to light, tracking, pain, fatigue, we want to refer to a neurooptometrist or ophthalmologist. If we don't have any of those issues and we are maybe having difficulty with just reading words fluently, understanding what we've read, we see a lot of need to reread something, reread a paragraph three, four times and ha still having difficulty remembering the information and reduce stamina. So maybe before you were able to read for an hour and now you can only read for five minutes. And so depending on your job, that might be a huge issue. So uh, reading and reading comprehension. So you can still do it, but it's not the same as it was before. It mm -hmm. takes a lot longer and you don't remember that information. Yeah. 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 We typically see that. And then written expression. Um, this is really any written materials that can be either having challenges, whether it be through print or electronic. And again, if there's physical aspects of writing, like there's, you know, people will often talk about, oh yeah, now my handwriting is terrible or they're having a hard time with their hand, the coordination that is occupational therapist. So you want to refer to an OT for that. 
But what we look at is constructing the sentences and formulating ideas for writing if they're having a hard time with organizing their thoughts or finding the right words, if they're having spelling difficulties that were different from how they were pre-injury. If they have any challenges in those areas, then you would want to also refer to a speech pathologist. And then lastly, why don't you share with us the uh, last section? It's kind of a big section um, and an important yes, one. It is. <laughs> so this is our thinking, our reasoning, our problem solving, executive functioning skills, and being able to regulate that. Insight, maybe difficulty really recognizing there is a problem. Now, I will say with mild traumatic brain injury, this is not as much of an issue. Right. We see this a little bit more with moderate to severe. Typically, with a concussion, people are quite aware of the challenges that they are having. But with a more moderate to severe traumatic brain injury, there might be, there really is some limited awareness and denial of some of the symptoms that, you know, I can do this. I don't have any issue with this. Or they may have conversations and really not recognize that they're not going well. So I will say it's a little bit better with, with mild traumatic brain injury, but being able to make and then express your decision. So decision-making there's a lot that involves that goes mm -hmm. into decision making. So being able to pick up on the important uh, points and weighing options and trying to predict consequences in the future to, to then be able to make a decision. Also discussing things without feeling over being overwhelmed or upset, kind of that self-regulation piece, filtering out less relevant information, focusing on the priorities or the main point organizing information, again, summarizing information, being able to brainstorm or generate ideas or thinking creatively can certainly be impacted as well. And then planning, prioritizing, following through with a task, and then being able to self-monitor. And how did I do in that? Was that really difficult for me? Is it, get, is it getting better? All of the, these areas that impact so many aspects of our life, right? Mm -hmm. Decision-making, not just at work, but at home. I hear so often, like, it's just hard to make a decision and we're second guessing it, or we make the wrong choice because we didn't consider all the facts or we weren't able to think about what would happen in the future. So yeah, this is a big area. Yeah. Yeah. So that is like a quick overview of what the checklist is. It's quite comprehensive, as you can see. And that's why mm -hmm. a lot of times when people go through it, they're like, yeah, I do have some of those things. And that's why then it's helpful to be referred to a speech pathologist. Now, once you see a speech pathologist, they will walk you through and do some assessments. I'm not sure what your assessment looks like, Danielle, but I know that we do we do want to get a baseline and we do want to see how you're functioning in different areas. But one of the most important things in the assessment is finding out exactly what the functional challenges are, what they're struggling with, because sometimes our assessment tools are great, but they're not always sensitive to mild uh, traumatic brain injury. And when I say mild traumatic brain injury, just it, I'm using it interchangeably with concussion because concussion is a mild traumatic brain injury. So we do an assessment and then I'd say the more interesting thing that people would want to know is, okay, so how do you treat these things? So can you share? I I'm always curious finding out how other speech paths, what creative ideas they have to tackle these areas. Can you share some of the things that somebody could expect if they come and they see you? What is that mm -hmm. going to look like? So 
in terms of the functional assessment, that's going to create our plan of care. What are we going to work on depends on what you need to do. What do you need to do at home? What do you need to do at work or school? So it's going to look, and this is the fun part, is that it's going to look different for everyone. So give me an example of like a typical, a couple of typical clients, maybe somebody who's working versus somebody who's a student. Like what's their therapy? What's the treatment going to look like? Assuming that they have challenges in some of these areas and they're working and then assuming they have challenges in some of these areas and they're more of a student. Okay. So generally there's always education. Mm There's always strategy instruction. No matter what we do, there will always be strategies. And I do want to make a point here because I think strategies sometimes get a bad rap for being compensatory in nature. And I recently, last year, watched a webinar by Dr. Lynn Turkstra, and she really, she we need to get rid of compensatory and restorative because they're not, it, it's, they're not different in the brain. There's not an area of the brain that's compensatory. And I know people are hesitant because they might view it as a crutch, Right. but if this allows you to engage in that task that you're not able to do before, not able to do before, not able to successfully do. And now you're able to do that that's a win. Mm -hmm. And you may not always need that strategy. Like any, we're going to fade cues. We're going to fade support. You may fade the use of strategies, but strategy is not a bad thing, right? It's a, we all use strategies in our daily life. Well, I always Um, say to people, I always say to them, Sometimes my goal often is to get you so good at your strategies. They're not even strategies anymore. They just become who you are. So when I say to people like writing things down or using a strategy of setting an alarm or making a list or doing something like that, I'm like, I guess I technically use strategies all the time because it's part of my regular routine. I'm like, I don't want to have my brain filled with all this stuff. I use a strategy of writing it down. And then on a daily basis, every morning I review what I need to do. I plug it in. So I don't look at it as, well, I'm using a strategy because my memory is not great. And sometimes after a concussion, people are using the strategy because their memory is not great, but it Mm -hmm. allows you to do so much more and you can just integrate it into your life. It just becomes part of who you are. And so I love that idea of let's get rid of this idea that we have to have a strategy so that you can compensate and it's a bit of a crutch and we're going to have to wean Mm -hmm. it off. Sometimes we're not ever going to wean it. Sometimes we want it to become automatic. We want it to become right. second nature. Maybe the strategy is asking yourself, do they need to know? Maybe you are very verbose or you talk a lot and you need to kind of rein it in a little bit. And maybe that strategy is self-monitoring or being trying able, trying to self-regulate yourself by using that cue. And you may effortfully use it in the beginning and make a concerted effort to do it. And then again, it may just become second nature and you may not even notice it anymore, but they're all strategies. So strategy instruction is huge and we want to practice the real things that you need. So let's say I had a client who was 
in HR. And so part of her job was to be able to process like expense reports from, from everyone in the company. And so what did we do? We actually practiced that. We had fake receipts that she actually had to put in the real template that she used, the real Excel sheet that she used in work to be able to practice that before going back because we want our clients to go back to work or back to school and be successful. Mm -hmm. And we're there to support them as they reintegrate back, but we want to be able to practice those real skills. We might simulate some conversations if we're practicing, okay, you want to remember information at a doctor's appointment. So these are your strategies. You're going to write things down. You're going to summarize information. You're going to ask clarifying questions. Then we actually do a mock interview or simulate that role play that. And there's a lot of role playing. Sometimes if you're having difficulty, maybe calling Bell or Rogers or someone, those conversations can be complex and, and yeah. requires a higher level. And so we might actually practice that. You might yeah. actually call someone. I talk about like scripting things out with my clients. If my clients will say, I need to have a conversation, even if it's a conversation with my husband, a conversation with my child, a conversation with my teacher, and we will script it out. What do you want to say? How do you want to say it? We may even write it out. We may practice it. So it's doing some of that rehearsal that ties into the idea of how the brain learns and works. If you're more familiar, if you've practiced it before, it becomes much easier. So yeah, I love the idea of practicing these scenarios. Sometimes clients will say like, well, it's too fake. This is not real, but just reviewing them, reviewing the steps. Often it is problem solving. Like what is the conflict that you're having? And what do you think the consequences of that being that action being? I know that the approach that I work with, and I'm sure that you take this approach as well. And with certain clients is what we call a metacognitive approach teaching them to think about their thinking, teaching them. And I always say from my coaching background, it comes in teaching them how to self-coach. Like you said, should I be saying that? How should I be saying that? What's the consequence of this happening? Really thinking about your thinking and coaching yourself through things, even getting stuck with memory or getting stuck with a word finding and teaching them how to regulate themselves, how to breathe, how to access their thinking skills so that they can use any of the strategies that, that we've taught them. So yeah, role-playing is also, it's a huge thing. Any other things that you do that might be something so people can get an idea of what it looks like to work with a speech pathologist on all these areas? I mean, if you're trying to get back to school, let's say, and you're trying to, re you're having difficulty remembering information, lectures or information from text, we're going to practice that. So if mm -hmm. we're going to get your textbook on your topic, whatever you're yeah. learning about, and we are going to implement, probably teach a strategy like mm -hmm. pew. P Q R S T or to try and be able to remember that information. If it's trying to learn new information, I mean, 
TED Talks. We mm-hmm. love our TED Talks so much. I had a, a client who recently had a diagnosis of diabetes. And so we watched a TED Talk about sugar levels. Mm-hmm. And so not only is the, the content meaningful to her, but it also allowed us to see how to practice our attention skills and our note-taking and being able to kind of come up, what's the main idea from this? What's the takeaway point? What do I need to learn? What questions can I ask my doctor during my follow-up? So really try to simulate their everyday activities. Yeah. And I love what you were talking about with, with students. One of the things that is very common is we literally just help them with their coursework. I mean, I can't tell you the number of essays that I've worked on and outlines and helping brainstorm ideas and, and going through and editing and not just what I joke, my mom editing with my own kids where I may go through, but it's really teaching like, why is this the way it is? If you're having trouble with words, how to come up with different words. So I think, yeah, trying to be as much in the real environment as possible. And I love also your point about new learning because new learning is also a way to be building up other pathways in the brain. So we are trying to help the recovery, but at the same time, like our goal is always to make our brain stronger, to practice, to exercise. And these are all creating these new pathways with all that new learning is serves as a protective function for your brain as well. So thank you for sharing all those. And is there anything else you want to add that maybe we haven't covered? I know this has been a long chat, but I think it's an important one. Is there anything we missed? I don't think so. I think we've covered all the main ideas. I certainly think that we have some work in terms of advocacy still to mm-hmm. do, but I like this is this is one step in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So where tell people where they can find you, Danielle. My website is neuroconnections.ca. They can also find me on Instagram at at neuro.connections. And there I like to share some education, some strategies, and they can also reach me directly through email at danielle at neuroconnections.ca. Awesome. Thank you so much. And I know for my practice that I work with, it's Michelle Cohen and associates.com is our website. And I obviously people can reach me for my coaching practice at Leah Davidson life coaching, but I still spend a lot of time in speech pathology world. So you can always reach out there too. Thank you so much for this conversation. I hope that people have found it to be helpful. I think concussions, brain injury, it touches our lives at some point. I know I said last week, whether it be you, your child, your grandchild, your neighbor, a student, most of us have encountered it. And I think it serves us well to gain more knowledge. I think as speech pathologists, we want to advocate more because we are advocating for communication and communication. I think, you know, what do we have without our ability to communicate? We see that with other people who have more significant injuries. If you lose the ability to communicate, you're losing a big chunk of your quality of life. So we always want to be advocating for maximizing what we can do. And there is a role for helping you. If you are struggling with a concussion, if it has been going on for a little bit too long, there is help. There's help for your physical, there's help for your cognitive, there's help for your communication. So reach out and thanks for being here and I'll see you next time. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the Building Resilience Podcast. 
If you're interested in learning a little bit more about managing stress, building resilience, and leading a more purposeful life, then make sure we're connected on Instagram and Facebook at Leah Davidson Life Coaching. You can also subscribe to my weekly newsletter at www.leahdavidsonlifecoaching.com forward slash newsletter. Looking forward to connecting.